Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. I've been trying to figure out what I was going to say here for months. Hollywood sex abuse scandal growing by the allegations against Spacey. The Hollywood mogul sexually Harley Rose is out at CBS News. Matt Lauer has been fired. Bill Cosby, guilty, guilty, guilty. The patriarchy has got to go. It felt like getting my message right in this moment was more important than anything. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Feinstein, members, members of, of the, the committee. committee, my name is Anita F. Hill. My name is Christine Blasey Ford. You told the world that time's up on violence. Yes, we go. yes means yes and no means no. You told the world that time's up on silence. What the Me Too movement has saying is that women are worthy of being believed. After soldiering through the Supreme Court nomination process, gross mischaracterization, attacks from the White House, and the rallies, internet trolls, and heart-wrenching testimonies, and marches, I'm faced with my own hard truths. I'm numb. Tarana Burke and I met, um, actually, uh, a few days after the October 15th tweet was sent, um, which initially I had no idea uh, of the incredible work that Tarana had been doing for the last 10 years um, with using the words me too. And so uh, I sent out that initial tweet and it was coming back to me on Twitter that there was this woman, this amazing woman who had been doing this work uh, in New York. Her name was Tarana Burke. And so I looked her up and I found her on Twitter and I DM'd her. So I think she didn't know what was happening in the beginning because it was such a whirlwind, but uh, she may have been skeptical of me and my intentions. Um, and so I felt like it was so important that I assure her that, um, that this is hers, that the words me too, uh, that have resonated with w- millions of women, not only in this country, but throughout the world. Um, and that hashtag is because of the work that she put in and because of the, uh, this philosophy that I think really, um, captures people's hearts of healing through empathy. And so uh, I'm very happy, uh, to say the least, that Tarana is one of my first guests on Sorry Not Sorry. Uh, Tarana, my first question to you is, uh, what exactly do you think makes the words Me Too so damn powerful? I think the words Me Too are comforting to people. And I've said this before because 
it can be now, particularly because it is a part of um, the popular lexicon, it's given people language right. and it's given people in some regard shorthand to talk about things or to not talk about things that are deeply uncomfortable for them, um, particularly around sexual violence. So you can say me too now, which was always our goal for people to be able to say me too and leave it at that. You know, that's why we have a period at the end of it or to say it and people understand exactly what you mean. I think it gives people the space that they need um, and the cover that they need while they're figuring their way through survival. Um, But it's also a declaration. You know, one of the things that has shifted or that's um, the ideas that sort of expanded since it went viral is that. Part of what happened when it went viral is it became a declaration, right, to identify a community. And so I always thought it would be just known amongst survivors that it would be our way of identifying each other Mm. and talking to Mm. each other and declaring to each other. But it's now an outward declaration, too, right? It says we stand together. we, um, We identify with one another. And it immediately says to the person, I think, the and it's really, really, really basic sense. And the idea of empowerment through empathy comes from this place, which is that in a basic sense, when somebody says me too, to another survivor, it's the same as saying, I believe you. Yes. Or I see you, you know, and I'm here with you. We can't all be sluts. We can't all be asking for it. I am here to give you permission to be angry. This reality might not have to be our reality anymore. I felt this crushing sense of powerlessness. This is the time to take my power back. Here's my story. Uber promiscuity to sexual harassment. Clues cutting its ties with Bill O'Reilly. I felt it was my duty for the women who are silent Six to be brave. Have worked at the plaza. Saying it's okay to stand up for yourself. Taylor Swift appearing in court today. If only I could save you, help you, remove that weight from your tired shoulders, and become the joy of an unburdened you, I would. I also want to talk to you about this this hashtag that was sort of a secondary thought um, that really uh, hit its apex during the Kavanaugh uh, hearing. And it was the hashtag Believe Women that many people saw as, uh, you know, Believe Women um, – even if there's no evidence or um, believe women no matter what. Uh, so can you just briefly talk about those words, believe women and the hashtag and what you see them to be and how it's not at the expense of a man's innocence? This notion about believe women has been so controversial. Um, and actually, we don't say believe women. We say believe survivors. It's really important that people recognize that Me Too is not just about women and it's not just about it's not a woman's movement yeah but saying believe women or believe survivors um is not at the expense of anybody else it's not to say believe people regardless of who says it without investigation it's to try to shift away from what was the the norm before this moment and the norm before this moment was that when anybody declared or had the wherewithal to stand up and say that this thing happened to them, that they have dealt with sexual violence in some way or even sexual harassment, 
the, the people start off with the premise that they're lying. Right. Right. They start off from the place of questioning and not believing. And so if you automatically don't believe them, um, then you're not going to investigate further and you're not going to provide the kind of resources that they need. And so saying believe women or believe survivors is about starting from the premise that people are not lying and giving these declarations and claims and disclosures the kind of gravity and seriousness that they deserve, right? Believe women in mass when we're saying that this is what our lives are like, that this is our lived experience, that many of us have had multiple um, run-ins with harassment and violence uh, unprovoked, and that we all can't be lying when we say this is what our lives are like. So it's not about getting doing away with due process. It's not about, we can't even get to due process. If you don't believe it happened, then you won't even investigate enough to get to a place where we can look at all the evidence, look at both sides, right? You have to start off by believing that something happened before you can even... Um, get to the level of investigation. So that's that's where that notion comes from. Honestly, I was furious. I had had a man grope me in front of multiple colleagues, and I was tired of wondering if it was something I wore. I was tired of wondering if it was a vibe I was giving off. And when I talked to other women, they were furious too. I felt that if I can speak out, maybe if I just stand up, then someone else will stand up with me. From her to and him to, I would remove you from that particular we and lift the hashtag from in front of you and me. Four slashes of one size fits all. It should not fit you. Me too. I am you. Uh, how exactly, if, if at all, have you seen the language around sexual harassment and violence change uh, since you started working on this years ago? Um, I think that I don't know that it's changed a whole bunch, to be quite honest. I think that, you know, we've made a shift around using, uh, you know, shifting from victim language to survivor language in some ways. And I think that you know, the last two years in particular, we've heard people saying things like believe survivors. So that's certainly been a shift, uh, a huge shift that we didn't see before in the mainstream, at least. It was sort of, it was sort of talked about amongst those of us who do this work. But um, one of the things that has been super clear to me in this last year is that we need a shift in language and that shift in language will come from a shift in consciousness and that shift in consciousness will come from more education and outreach in the world so that people really understand the life cycle of a survivor. Right. I think that people still victim blame and use victim blaming kind of language and use disparaging language in relation to survivors of sexual violence because people have a really finite understanding of what a survivor is supposed to look like. We have new terminology over the last decade in our in our lexicon. We talk about rape culture now. We talk about um, patriarchy and privilege and things like that and all of this kind of stuff that helps to create a culture of violence and support a culture of violence. But we certainly need 
a mainstream shift in language and idea and like thinking. There are so many communities in which uh, harassment and assault are prevalent. Um, so I'm wondering how do we accelerate bringing these stories to the forefront and ending this violence? So yeah, there are many communities in which harassment and assault are prevalent. I think that I don't know that harassment and assault is any more prevalent in one community than another. I think that I've said this a hundred times, sexual violence, assault, harassment, those things don't discriminate. There's no one community that's more depraved than another. Right. But I think that the response to it differs. And so it's not that, you know, communities of color have more sexual violence, is that communities of color have less attention to what the, the kind of violence that's happening in our communities. You know, marginalized communities don't have the same elevation and um, amplification of our pain and of our experiences as other communities. Um, if anything, you know, statistically, indigenous communities have a higher rate of sexual violence that happens, which is steeped in a ton of issues um, that are basically, you know, um, stem from white supremacy. And so that is, you know, kind of a, a separate issue, but it's related to this idea that we need to, we need to amplify the stories of people who are pushed to the margins so that, so that folks can understand, even in the mainstream, even if you are white and male and privileged or white and female and privileged in some way, People need to understand that amplification of our stories only helps, only serves to amplify the issue in general because people need to see a broad picture of the reality of sexual violence and that it doesn't just, you know, if you only elevate one particular group, then you're only going to speak to the needs of that particular group. And our needs vary and our, our uh, resources vary and the kinds of resources we need vary. And so... We amplify those stories by those of us who have any kind of visibility or any kind of privilege have to use that, use our platforms, use our privilege to amplify the stories that, aren't, that don't get told. And to keep reiterating the message that all of our pain matters, all of our trauma matters, all of these things that happen in our communities matter. And we also have to have some intra-community conversations about why that matters so that when the amplification comes, that there's no resistance to it. The world is a sadly dangerous place for women and girls, and we see that again and again. And I think young women are tired of it. Uh, they're tired of being undervalued. They're tired of being uh, disregarded. They're tired of their voices not being invested in and heard. Part of the problem is that from a young age, girls are taught to stay quiet and be nice, and that boys are stronger and somehow we are less than. That is why it is hard for us to speak out. And even when we do speak out, people don't believe us. But there is power in numbers and good for us, good for everyone speaking out. I want to say thank you for everybody. All across the world where Me Too has taken off, Australia and France, Sweden, China, and now India, survivors of sexual violence are all at once being heard and then vilified. Do you see us? We are here, arm in arm. Whisper your story on the mountain. 
Their sound shields us all. Yell your story upon deaf ears. Together we fall. If only I could save you. If only I could take it away. If only I could help you. I would cure yesterday. And why is it so important to focus on what happens after Me Too? And what does happen? So it's important to focus on what happens after Me Too. In a sense, people ask this question all the time. Me Too is a designation and a declaration. But after you, you know, sort of reveal yourself as a survivor, Me Too only serves to reveal you as a survivor and identify you as a part of a community and give you, you know, and it helps. It's it's like a starting point. Um, and so much stuff happens after people disclose. Me Too is essentially disclosure. And disclosure is a roller coaster ride for a lot of folks. You know, I think about the people who said Me Too or hashtag Me Too online and then nobody liked their post or nobody commented or they got a lot of backlash or pushback, right? Because people were left exposed um, in really uh, uncomfortable ways. And so the work that we do is focused on it. Our, our work is not focused on encouraging people to say me too. People will come to that in their on their own. Um, our work is focused on making sure that people know that when they come to that place and they're able to say it and they're able to name themselves and declare it and stand in this number, that there are, we're waiting for them with the kind of resources they need to figure out how to craft a journey. The me too is the start of the journey. And the subsequent Me Too's you hear after that hold you up during the journey. But really, it's about crafting your journey. And a lot of that is figuring out what you need, which is the most difficult part. Because a lot of us need different things at different times. Right. And so it feels like one cancels the other. Or you don't know what you want or, you know, it invalidates your feelings. But survivors need to know that that is perfectly valid. It's perfectly valid to need one thing this year and need a completely different thing that next year. It's perfectly valid to feel like you've advanced in your journey and then all of a sudden you feel like you're back at zero, right? This is That is all a part of it. And it's all about, the, the after me too is all about figuring out what those resources are. I mean, what those things you need and then our job is to help you connect them to resources. And it's also to help do the work of like ending sexual violence is not enough. Just like it's not enough to say me too and leave it. It's not enough for people to hear me too and not do anything about it. Can't watch 12 million people use a hashtag in 24 hours and not feel like it's a sense of urgency around that. How can we make sure everyone feels in their heart, like really feels like their voices and stories will be heard? I don't know that we have to make sure people feel like their voices and stories will be heard. We need to find ways to make sure that they are actually heard. Feeling like your story and your voice will be heard is not helpful. Seeing our stories and our voices amplified in media, in our communities even, is what is most helpful. After I was assaulted when I was 19... I changed forever. He did not care how old I was. I was young and innocent, only 17 years old. So it feels like he took a part of me 
that I can't get back. Brett's assault on me drastically altered my life. Thomas told me graphically of his own sexual prowess. So millions of people have come out posting Me Too. It is not always easy, but we have to do that. And that's why I posted, and I will say it right now out loud, Me Too. Um... It starts with we before all twos. Between we weep, we shake in the same worn shoes. One size fits all of awe and pain. One decibel of thunder, a lifetime of rain. I am you. I said, I am you. I carry your weight. We are more than committees, those committers of hate. I am bonded to you arm in arm until we live in a world with no sexual harm. Protect us by listening. Protect us forever, because we are here, uprising together. What's the most rewarding part of the work that you're doing right now? I don't know. It's rewarding in a lot of ways. It's rewarding to me when I have survivors approach me like they do every single day um, to say that this moment in time has changed their lives, to say that they feel free, to say that they now understand that they deserve more than they were allowing themselves to to have. Um, just to see so many people getting free from the from the burden and the the sort of scourge of sexual violence is so rewarding. But also, it's rewarding for me to see people starting to believe and speak in a way that makes me know that people believe that we can end sexual violence. Like, I don't think that people are unrealistic and I don't, I try to be incredibly realistic and, um, you know, I'm a realist in a lot of ways. I don't, I'm not saying a hashtag is going to save us because a hashtag is just that it's a galvanizing tool. And, you know, it is a, it is used for amplification, but, this movement and this work as it has been for decades and decades, I don't mean me too. I mean the, the movement to end sexual violence for decades and decades has been advancing. And so I'm able to talk about me too, because Rosa Parks was talking about Reese Taylor, right? It doesn't, we all build upon the next thing and upon the next thing, but we have to work like we believe that we can end sexual violence. Right. Um, I think, we have plenty of examples in our in our past. You know, there was a time when people thought it was absurd to think about Black people voting. And there was a time when we did not even talk about things like, like drunk driving until Mothers Against Drunk Driving made it their mission and amplified the, the, the cause to a place where it just became part of our lives. And so while there's still tons of people who drink and drive, it's nowhere near what it would have been had there not been a an, an, a national push to shift the culture. And so this push, this work that we're doing right now is super rewarding to me because I know that it is going to go a long way to shift the culture even beyond when we're here. And it'll be another generation living a different life. And it, they may not end sexual violence in the next generation either, but they'll be so much more closer or close to it because of the work that we're doing now. So that's probably the most rewarding thing to me. Well, I was so absolutely relieved when I found you. And I know that's a weird word to choose, but 
there was a part of me that felt like I wasn't going to be able to um, handle the pressure of this movement alone because it felt so much bigger than I was. And um, to know that uh, you are there uh, and have been there for 20 years for survivors um, has just, I think, propelled this into a place that uh, there is no going back. So on behalf of my mother who was sexually assaulted, on behalf of, of me and the millions of people who have said me too, thank you so much for the work that you do. In 2006, 12 years ago, I laid across a mattress on my floor in my one-bedroom apartment, frustrated with all the sexual violence that I saw in my community. I pulled out a piece of paper and I wrote Me Too on the top of it. And I proceeded to write out an action plan for building a movement based on empathy between survivors that would help us feel like we can heal, that we weren't the sum total of the things that happened to us. We owe future generations a world free of sexual violence. I believe we can build that world. Do you? I was very excited to have Vice President Biden as part of our first episode. We recorded this prior to some of the allegations that came out. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I am proud to call Joe Biden a friend. He has been a leader and a champion on fighting violence against women for many years and has since come forward with the following statement. Social norms have begun to change, they've shifted, and the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. And I get it. I get it. I hear what they're saying. I understand it. And I'll be much more mindful. That's my responsibility. Why was the issue of sexual assault important to you? Well, because I was raised by a man, my father, who taught me that the greatest uh, sin of all was the abuse of power, and a cardinal sin was a man to raise his hand to a woman. My dad was absolutely insistent we react, we intervene if we ever saw that. And so in 1991, when I wrote the Domestic Violence Act, the sexual assault at that time was swept under the rug. People knew what was going on, but it was a genuine epidemic that no one wanted to do anything about. It was a family matter. That's why I hate the phrase domestic violence. It's like a domesticated cat. It's the ugliest form of violence there is. And so we heard thousands of, thousands of hours of, a thousand hours of testimony from women who had been abused by their husbands or boyfriends or acquaintances. And we got to see it firsthand in a way none of us, I don't think the nation had seen it before. When Nita Hill bravely decided to testify against Clarence Thomas and, uh, and we saw this issue come straight into everyone's living room. We saw how she was treated and how she was, how, how it was, uh, it was a realization to me that we had to change the culture around sexual harassment and assault. I had started to write the Violence Against Women Act already, but this just reignited my determination to see to it that we push forward and get something significant done. And the fact of the matter is that well, you know, we, uh, when we wrote the act, there was a widespread belief that women somehow brought on this abuse. Why didn't they just walk away? Why didn't they just, what were they wearing? That is totally, totally irrelevant. Cultural attitudes around violence and abuse have to be changed in this country. We had to provide support for women who had experienced this abuse. It is never, never the woman's fault. 
in large part, we've been successful. Annual rates have dropped by more than 60%. But when I was vice president, I asked the president to let me take the sexual assault unit into the vice president's office, which I did. And one day I sent my team over to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, fancy name, but it's where they keep all the records of, of uh, the crimes committed. And we learned that women between the ages of 16 and 24 it hadn't changed much as how they were treated. They faced the highest rates of abuse. And I learned that 80% of women who had been victimized experienced their first sexual assault before the age of 25. That's when we started It's On Us. And we also found out, and which we already knew, but was, was nailed down, the CDC proved that uh, to be true, that there are long-term effects on a woman's mental health as well as physical health. It's true, 81% of the women who are raped or sexual assault report a significant short-term or long-term psychological effects from the assault. And according to some studies, almost one in every three rape victims develop PTSD, just like the military does, sometime during their lives. It's unconscionable that women have to carry this burden. It affects their daily lives in ways most men can't even imagine. I'm devoted and will continue to devote my life to this issue, and I'm not stopping now. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. When I was raped eight weeks into my freshman year of college, I experienced PTSD and crippling anxiety that sometimes made it nearly impossible for me to attend class. Now, these things, in addition to self-harm, substance abuse, and depression, are some of the many symptoms a victim of sexual assault may experience. So naturally, when that victim is a student, their university should be the first place they can turn to to report their assailant and to seek help for the trauma. It's on us to stop sexual assault. To get in the way before it happens. To get a friend home safe. And to not blame the victim. It's on us. To look out for each other. To, to not, not look, look the, the other way. way. It's on us to stand up. To step in. To take responsibility. It's on us all of us to, to stop, stop sexual, sexual assault. assault. Learn how and take the pledge at itsonus.org. So how has the work changed since Me Too went viral in 2017? Well, I think it's changed a lot. For the first time, we're seeing real accountability. When men lose their jobs and their reputations as a result of the acts they committed, we start to get real cultural change. There has to be moral disapprobation for what they do, and they have to be identified. We've seen a real national conversation happen in the last year and a half. We've seen a powerful attitude shift in support of women coming forward. They now know they come forward and they'll be embraced and not just vilified. From Hollywood to the highest levels of sports, to corporate boardrooms, but also to the shop floors and local restaurants. But we have so much more to do. What about the people that say that it's gone too far? You know, when I hear that the pendulum has swung too far... I think how absurd that is. This kind of backlash occurs when you start to make real progress. We have hundreds of years to make up for. We have to change the culture of the United States, and this is our moment. This is our moment. You know what the phrase rule of thumb means? Uh, I don't think so. Tell me. It goes back to common law in the late 1300s. They said that a man can no longer strike a woman with a stick bigger than the circumference of his thumb. This is a cultural problem. And Me Too has been a powerful tribute to truth-telling. But we have to reach women at all levels, not just actresses in Hollywoods, but the waitresses in restaurants down the street, the farm worker, the hotel maid, 
and uh, and a year and, and and you know it's 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 been vitally important to have so many women people like you leaders like you and others using their platforms to help reach women every day so that every woman knows that there's help available that we're there that abuse occurs in every industry that every sector of society it's not their fault this they can't that stop blaming themselves we have to come forward they have to come forward and we have to embrace them i would say that you should not be ashamed of what happened to you uh because the definition of sexual assault is that it took place without your consent so unfortunately our society and maybe friends and family feel like we should be ashamed and maybe we sometimes feel like we should be ashamed but we shouldn't because at the end of the day somebody else chose to do this to you you didn't you did not choose it i fell into like every single trap because at that point um i should have said no absolutely not right we think we think we should but you don't because you're like what do i say even now i kind of just like blame myself i'm like oh, if i would have known if i would have just said no if it's so many ifs and this is a big big thing that i always get asked this question um but i'd love to hear your perspective on it how can men be a part of the solution you know one of the mistakes or the oversights we didn't put as much emphasis on the role and responsibility of men uh when we wrote the violence against women act and so when i was vice president and i brought the uh the the apparatus inside the vice president's office and we found out what was happening still on college campuses uh hadn't changed very much at all we uh we did a you know virtual town hall they told me i don't know 20 30,000 people on the call i don't know what the number was college and high school school students and i i asked them i said i said if we could do anything to make it safer or more commodious for you on your campus or in your high school what would you have us do and quite frankly the women and men who were working on this we kind of thought they'd say better lighting more what you know what they said what did they say They said get men involved. Yep. Thousands of responses, spontaneous responses were there were two answers. We heard one, change the culture and two, get men involved. So if women alone can't stop this, they all of a sudden were dawned on us, you know, that we have to teach young men, we have to change the attitude of young men. And it would have been a long time ago in my view if we had done more of this. And Honestly, I I don't think anything is going to get changed until we include men in the process of fixing things. It's it's the only way to move forward. We need men to speak out and we need men to challenge their buddies. We need men to stop the the so-called locker room talk about conquest and talk to gradingly about women because most men are not they are not violators. Most men are not not the not the abusers. but they have to speak out against the abusers they have to make them the pariah we we need them to stop winking and nodding and start challenging the status quo and that, because that's what it means to really be a man you don't become a man at the expense of women it's not easy to stand up to your peers i know but it's exactly what has to happen so i've been encouraged i've traveled to ca- campuses all parts of the country and i've talked to thousands and thousands of college students young men as well as young women show up as many young men show up and they're now engaged they want to make a difference and they need to we need to see men uh that people can look up to yeah. their fathers their coaches their mentors doing the same exact thing 
So we have to shift this burden from it's a woman's burden, take it upon ourselves to change the culture. Men and women change the culture. We can do this. If the national epidemic of sexual assault on college campuses doesn't change, over 100,000 students of all genders will be victims of these crimes next year. Instead of focusing on those who commit sexual assault, we are focusing on the vast majority of students, the men and women who can do something about it, the allies in this movement. Let's put the responsibility on all of us to fight campus sexual assault, support survivors, and change the numbers forever. Well, there was criticism when you first started It's On Us because there was such a focus on young men. Look, um, again, the vast majority of young men are not abusers. The example I give when I'm on college campuses, so if you see a young co-ed who's had too much to drink being taken up the stairs at the fraternity house by one of your brothers, quote-unquote, if you don't have the nerve to go over and say, not in my house, yeah, not in my house, you're not a man, you're a damn coward, you're complicitous. When you see it happening, you have an obligation to intervene. And I feel like that would be an instinct, right? It's that's. I feel like young men would be fighting against a natural inclination to help if they don't do something. So it's really about giving them the, the courage and the tools to actually do something. It means we have to be talking to young men to get them engaged. Make sure they understand it's their responsibility. You wouldn't stand by if your friend was being beaten up. You wouldn't stand by if there was something happening that was horrendous and you could do something about it. Don't stand by. It's never appropriate for a man to take advantage of a woman, even if she's totally drunk or out of her mind. It is there can be no consent unless the woman can consciously know she's saying yes. Absent that, it's rape. It's a crime. It's a it's it's cannot be allowed. So let's be clear. Nothing about focusing on men's behavior means we're taking away uh, from survivors the much-needed resources for survivors. We just have to get them in and be part of the solution. And by the way, let's get something else straight. There are a lot of young men on campuses who are raped. A lot of young men on campuses are raped. And, uh, you know, this is not just women. Overwhelmingly women, but it's not just women. Thank you for saying that. Absolutely. That's a great reminder. Proposed rules by Education Secretary Betsy DeVos could strengthen protections for students accused of sexual misconduct. A major overhaul in the way colleges handle sexual assault complaints. They would reduce liability for the colleges and universities. It would narrow the definition of sexual harassment. It would hold schools accountable only for the formal complaints filed through proper authorities. And the conduct would have to have occurred on their campuses. I think that these policies, if this is what the regulation turns out to be, will absolutely prevent survivors from coming forward. It really does a lot of things to make it easier for students to get away with committing sexual assault on campus and ultimately makes it harder for survivors like myself and like the survivors that I work with every day at Endrape on campus to report sexual assault. I am deeply worried that our students will not continue to come forward, that they will will not continue to share with their schools the violence that they are enduring. Let's get something straight. The purpose of Title IX is to ensure that women and girls have equal access to education. It protects them against sexual discrimination, and there is no 
greater form of sexual discrimination than sexual violence. Sexual discrimination, sexual violence is sexual discrimination. So in 2011, Arne Duncan, the Secretary of Education and I, announced new Title IX guidelines that directed schools to give survivors the support they need to stay in school and to remedy the hostile climate caused by sexual violence. This guidance caused a sea change in the way schools responded to sexual assault. Schools created new policies to investigate sexual assault, new ways to support victims, and to make the school environment safe for everyone. Now along came Secretary DeVos. She not only rescinded that guidance, right. but she issued a proposed rule that will undermine our work every step of the way. The proposed rule reduces the liability for schools in responding to sexual violence, and it does so at the expense of the survivors. It requires that sexual harassment and violence be so pervasive, get this now, it has to be so pervasive that a student becomes completely unable to participate in school activities. The worst must happen before the department's going to act. Rather than fixing the problem before it becomes devastating, the rule holds that schools accountable are only accountable in the most egregious circumstances. In the Obama-Biden administration, our goal was to hold schools accountable as a means of keeping students safe, period. This administration wants to let schools off the hook. Students will suffer as a result. There will be fewer investigations of sexual assault on campus and even fewer perpetrators sanctioned for their behavior. This is no way, no way to ensure that women have access to education. But the good news is that more than 100,000 people and organizations sent in comments on these rule changes to the Department of Education. And the department is required to read them all. So this is not a done deal yet. And I want to thank the students and the survivors who made their views known. That's power. That's how it's supposed to work. I'm right by your side, and I'm never going to stop fighting for survivors. Amazing. Thank you. You know, I'm often asked how and when we will have succeeded. That's what the press always asks me. Well, I have a simple answer for the last 15 years. We will have succeeded when no woman blames herself for what happened to her and when no man believes he's entitled to violate a woman. Look, folks, I need your help. Everyone has to be part of this. Guys, speak out. Show some courage to challenge the behavior you know is wrong. And women can make an important difference by supporting each other. You know that your friends are most likely to come to you first. We know that. That's what the statistics show before they report to the authorities or seek help. So you have a responsibility to help. First, believe and support her. And second, know where to go to get the help for her. What about other communities? We also know that violence happens in the LGBTQ communities and in those relationships. Anyone can be at risk. And bisexual and trans women experience the highest rates of sexual violence. We can't forget this. We have to be there for them. We have to be there for everyone. Well, Vice President, I just want to thank you for your dedication on this issue um, and your leadership. Uh, you were talking about this before we were all talking about this. And I want to just acknowledge um, that that's pretty amazing. And to be able to talk with you and, and, and share in this, in this work uh, with you has meant so much to me. Uh, and onward. I'm right by your side. Let's get this done. Alyssa, 
Thanks for the wonderful job you're doing. I really, really admire your commitment to this, and uh, you're making a difference. You know, we're going to win this one woman at a time. This is one woman at a time. Our days started in 53,000 different ways. October 15th was a Sunday. We spent our day with our kids or our friends or our partners or our parents or our co-workers. Some of us spent the day alone. We had different dreams, different worries, different resumes, backgrounds, experiences, and expectations. We may have even passed each other on the street that day without knowing. But by the next morning, those 53,000 different days, those 53,000 women, those 53,000 different lives had come together in one movement grounded in just two words. Me too. The hashtag Me Too has been used more than 12 million times in 85 different countries and has become so much more than just a hashtag. The words Me Too connected us through our pain, but they also connected us to our power. Our predators could rely on the shield of their privilege, but finally we had protection too, in the form of each other. I'll never forget where I was that Sunday. In my chest, my heart was on fire. It had been a bad week and a bad year to be a woman in this country. 2017 started in the worst possible way. A man who has not only been accused of sexual assault, but has bragged about it, became president of the United States. The most powerful man in the country, arguably in the world. And then even in the face of our hard-fought resistance, he proceeded to spend the year trying to roll back our rights. By the time October rolled around and the Harvey Weinstein story broke, I was far from the only one who had had enough. I kept asking myself a simple question. Why are people so terrible to women? I spent my weekend reading article after article about prominent men accused of sexual assault and abuse. On the one hand, I was glad these stories were being written, but I didn't like the way they were being told. The predator was always the protagonist. The coverage was about his life, his career, how much he had to lose. Not the women he had hurt, abused, or driven from the workforce. Not the women who had been ripped from society, their ideas and contributions lost to us all. The data tells us that one in three women will have experienced sexual advances from a man they work with. Let that really sink in. One in three. And the news was making it sound like this was just a Hollywood story or a Washington story or a D.C. problem, but I knew from my own life that most of my friends had encountered sexual harassment, misconduct, or abuse. And I have very few friends who are actors. When we say one in three women, of course we're also talking about women who work in hotels and restaurants and farms and hospitals. Our neighbors, our daughters, our sisters— Our mothers. 
For many of these women, every paycheck matters. Hiring an attorney is an expense that's just out of the question. Losing their job is not an option. And even if they do speak up, they run the risk that no one will believe them. These are women who are targeted precisely because they are vulnerable. Women whose abusers count on their silence. Well, I thought it was time we heard those stories, too. So on that Sunday, I got into bed with my kids. I watched my daughter sleep. And I wept for her. I vowed that her future would be different. And that's where I was when my friend Charlotte Clymer sent me a message with the idea a call to action first sounded about a decade ago by the great Tarana Burke. It was at once a small act of solidarity and a chance to illustrate the enormous scope of this plague in our society. If you have been sexually harassed or assaulted, reply with Me Too. The predators already had their platforms. This, I hoped, could be ours. These men who had demanded access to our bodies thought they themselves were untouchable. This, I hoped, could finally tip the balance of power. By sharing our stories, stories in which we were the protagonists, we made clear that every single one of us is so much more than just the victim of someone else's actions. Yes, we want our abusers to know that they can and should be held accountable. But this is bigger than them. We want to end this entire spectrum of sexual harassment and assault once and for all. And we want to dismantle the systems that allowed these crimes to go on for so long. And as I see it, there are three things that must happen first. Education, legislation, and activation. First, education. I'm raising two kids right now, a boy and a girl, and I think all the time about the forces that will shape the people they become. I know that they are learning about equality at home. I make sure of that. But I also know that there are some kids who aren't. This should be a part of every curriculum in every school, lessons that absolutely everyone should hear. Because respecting the value of every single human you meet is a basic, fundamental requirement of being part of society. And apparently, there are a lot of people who still don't get that. So let's make sure the message is reaching everyone. Second, legislation. It's time, in fact, it's way past time to pass an equal rights amendment that guarantees women's protection in the Constitution. We need other protections too, paid family leave, equal pay for equal work, the Violence Against Women's Act, a domestic workers' bill of rights in all 50 states. And even though we shouldn't need a law that equips hotel housekeepers with panic buttons, apparently we do. Chicago passed one after a survey of hospitality workers found that half had seen a guest expose himself. As one hospitality worker in California put it, they feel that they have the right 
to the lady who cleans the room. I hope and pray I live to see a world where everyone finally understands that you cannot do that to anyone, ever, no matter how important you think you are. But in the meantime, let's make sure these women have what they need to protect themselves. So let's keep asking the right questions and demanding the right action. Which brings me to activation. Despite Trump's best efforts, we still live in a democracy. And in a democracy, progress doesn't happen automatically. It requires our action and participation. It challenges us and empowers us because at the end of the day, it is us. So to everyone listening, promise me, you will commit to do whatever you can using whatever power and platform you have to end this ridiculous status quo. And men, I am talking to you too. Do not doubt that there is a place in this movement for you. In fact, the future we're all working towards is impossible without you. We need you on our side, not just because we're your wives and your daughters and sisters and mothers, but because we are human beings, equally endowed with the same inalienable rights. So please, let's move forward together. Overall, I'm hopeful. The words me too have always been more than just a testament to our past. They are a prayer for our future. I'm hopeful that these stories won't be the norm for my daughter's generation because there will be a new set of rules, a new set of expectations for the men of my son's generation. I'm hopeful that eventually we'll stop hearing new voices say those two words altogether. But this movement isn't going anywhere until our work is done. The words Me Too are going to keep echoing. They will reverberate off every closed door. They will bounce off every glass ceiling. We will feel their vibrations every time we hit a wall that stands between us. Me too. Me too. Me too. They'll echo until every door has been opened, until every glass ceiling has been smashed, until those walls that exist to keep us out have come down. And only once there is nothing left for these walls to bounce off, no barriers left to hold us back, will those echoes go silent. Because that will mean that we don't need them anymore. That's what I'm praying for. That's what I'm working for. For my daughter. For your daughter. For all of us. Do you know what the word consent means? Dad, you need to tell people, could I give you a hug? Perfect. That's exactly right. You have to ask if you could get a hug, and people have to ask you if they can get a hug. Who, who owns your body? Me. That's right, you, because you're so special. Do you know how much I love you? How much? More than all the grains of sand in all of the world. How much do you love me? Oh, that's a, that's a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Our production associate is Daniela Silva. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.